Section 31 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 29. Letters, 1889. THE MACHINE DEATH OF MR. CRANE CONCLUSION OF THE YANKEE In January 1889, Clemens believed, after his long seven years of waiting, fruition had come in the matter of the type machine. Page, the inventor, seemed at last to have given it its finishing touches. The mechanical marvel that had cost so much time mental stress and a fortune in money stood complete responsive to the human will and touch the latest and one of the greatest wonders of the world to george standring a london printer and publisher clemens wrote the machine is finished and added this is by far the most marvelous invention ever contrived by man and it is not a thing of rags and patches it is made of massive steel and will last a century in his fever of enthusiasm on that day when he had actually seen it in operation he wrote a number of exuberant letters they were more or less duplicates but as the one to his brother is of fuller detail and more intimate than the others it has been selected for preservation here to orion clemens in keokuk Hartford, January 5, 89. Dear Orion, At 12.20 this afternoon, a line of movable types was spaced and justified by machinery for the first time in the history of the world, and I was there to see. It was done automatically, instantly, perfectly. This is indeed the first line of movable types that ever was perfectly spaced and perfectly justified on this earth. This was the last function that remained to be tested, and so by long odds the most amazing and extraordinary invention ever born of the brain of man stands completed and perfect. Livy is downstairs celebrating. But it's a cunning devil, is that machine, and knows more than any man that ever lived. You shall see. We made the test in this way. We set up a lot of random letters in a stick, three-fourths of a line, then filled out the line with quads representing fourteen spaces, each space to be thirty-five one-thousandths of an inch thick. Then we threw aside the quads and put the letters into the machine and formed them into fifteen two-letter words, leaving the words separated by two-inch vacancies. Then we started up the machine slowly, by hand, and fastened our eyes on the space-selecting pins. The first pin block projected its third pin as the first word came traveling along the raceway. Second block did the same. But the third block projected its second pin. Ah, hell! Stop the machine! Something wrong! It's going to set a 31,000 space. General consternation. A foreign substance has got into the spacing plates. This from the head mathematician. 
Yes, that is the trouble, assented the foreman. Page examined. No, look in, and you can see that there is nothing of the kind. Further examination. Now I know what it is, what it must be. One of those plates projects and binds. It's too bad. The first test is a failure. A pause. Well, boys, no use to cry. Get to work. Take the machine down. No, hold on. Don't touch a thing. Go right ahead. We are fools. The machine isn't. The machine knows what it's about. There is a speck of dirt on one of those types, and the machine is putting in a thinner space to allow for it. That was just it. The machine went right ahead, spaced the line, justified it to a hair, and shoved it into the galley complete and perfect. We took it out and examined it with a glass. You could not tell by your eye that the third space was thinner than the others, but the glass and the calipers showed the difference. Page had always said that the machine would measure invisible particles of dirt and allow for them, but even he had forgotten that vast fact for the moment. All the witnesses made written record of the immense historical birth, the first justification of a line of movable type by machinery, and also set down the hour and the minute. Nobody had drank anything, and yet everybody seemed drunk, well dizzy, stupefied stunned all the other wonderful inventions of the human brain sank pretty nearly into commonplace contrasted with this awful mechanical miracle telephones telegraphs locomotives cotton gins sewing machines babbage calculators jacquard looms perfecting presses arc rights frames all mere toys simplicities the page compositor marches alone and far in the lead of human inventions. In two or three weeks we shall work the stiffness out of her joints and have her performing as smoothly and softly as human muscles, and then we shall speak out the big secret and let the world come and gaze. Return me this letter when you have read it. Sam Judge of the elation which such a letter would produce in Keokuk yet it was no greater than that which existed in hartford for a time then further delays before the machine got the stiffness out of her joints that cunning devil manifested a tendency to break the types and page who was never happier than when he was pulling things to pieces and making improvements had the typesetter apart again and the day of complete triumph was postponed there was sadness at the elmira farm that spring Theodore Crane, who had long been in poor health, seemed to grow daily worse. In February he had paid a visit to Hartford and saw the machine in operation, but by the end of May his condition was very serious. Remembering his keen sense of humor, Clemens reported to him cheering and amusing incidents. To Mrs. Theodore Crane in Elmira, New York, Hartford, May 28, 89. Susie, dear, I want you to tell this to Theodore. You know how absent-minded Twitchell is, and how desolate his face is when he is in that frame. At such times he passes the wood with a friend on the street, and is not aware of the meeting at all. Twice in a week, our Clara had this latter experience with him within the past month, but the second instance 
was too much for her, and she woke him up in his tracks with a reproach. She said, Uncle Joe, why do you always look as if you were just going down into the grave when you meet a person on the street? And then went on to reveal to him the funeral spectacle which he presented on such occasions. Well, she has met Twitcher three times since then, and would swim the Connecticut to avoid meeting him the fourth. As soon as he sights her, no matter how public the place, nor how far off she is, he makes a bound into the air, heaves arms and legs into all sorts of frantic gestures of delight, and so comes prancing, skipping, and pirouetting for her like a drunken Indian into an heaven. With a full invoice of love from us all to you and Theodore, S.L.C. The reference in the next to the closing sentence in a letter written by Howells to Clemens about this time refers to a heartbroken utterance of the former concerning his daughter Winnie, who had died some time before. She had been a gentle, talented girl, but never of robust health. Her death had followed a long period of gradual decline. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, July 13, 89. Dear Howells, I came on from Elmira a day or two ago, where I left a house of mourning. Mr. Crane died, after ten months of pain and two whole days of dying, at the farm on the hill, the third instant, a man who had always hoped for a swift death. Mrs. Crane and Mrs. Clemens and the children were in a gloom which brought back to me the days of nineteen years ago when Mr. Langdon died. It is heartbreaking to see Mrs. Crane. Many a time in the past ten days the sight of her has reminded me with a pang of the desolation which uttered itself in the closing sentence of your last letter to me. I do see that there is an argument against suicide, the grief of the worshippers left behind, the awful famine in their hearts. These are two costly terms for the release. I shall be here ten days yet, and all alone. Nobody in the house but the servants. Can't Mrs. Howe spare you to me? Can't you come and stay with me? The house is cool and pleasant. Your work will not be interrupted. We will keep to ourselves and let the rest of the world do the same. You can have your choice of three bedrooms, and you will find the children's schoolroom, which was built for my study, the perfection of a retired and silent den for work. There isn't a fly or a mosquito on the estate. Come. Say you will. With kindest regards to Mrs. Howells and Pillar and John. Yours ever, Mark. Howells was more hopeful. He wrote, I read something in a strange book, The Physical Theory of Another Life, that consoles a little. Namely, we see and feel the power of deity in such fullness that we ought to infer the infinite justice and goodness which we do not see or feel. And a few days later he wrote, I would rather see and talk with you than any other man in the world outside my own blood. A Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court was brought to an end that year and given to the artist and printer. 
Dan Beard was selected for the drawings and was given a free hand, as the next letter shows. To Fred J. Hall, Manager, Charles L. Webster and Company. Footnote. Charles L. Webster, owing to poor health, had by this time retired from the firm. End of footnote. Elmira, July 20, 89. Dear Mr. Hall, Upon reflection, thus, tell Bid to obey his own inspiration, and when he sees a picture in his mind, put that picture on paper, be it humorous or be it serious. I want his genius to be wholly unhampered. I shan't have fears as to the result. They will be better pictures than if I mixed in and tried to give him points on his own trade. Send this note, and he'll understand. Yours, S.L.C. Clemens had made a good choice in selecting Beard for the illustrations. He was well qualified for the work, and being of a socialistic turn of mind, put his whole soul into it. When the drawings were completed, Clemens wrote, Hold me under permanent obligations. What luck it was to find you. There are hundreds of artists that could illustrate any other book of mine, but there was only one who could illustrate this one. Yes, it was a fortunate hour that I went netting for lightning bugs and caught a meteor. Live forever. Clemens, of course, was anxious for Howells to read The Yankee, and Mrs. Clemens particularly so. Her eyes were giving her trouble that summer so that she could not read the manuscript for herself, and she had grave doubts as to some of its chapters. It may be said here that the book, today, might have been better if Mrs. Clemens had been able to read it. Howells was a peerless critic, but the revolutionary subject matter of the book so delighted him that he was perhaps somewhat blinded to its literary defects. However, this is premature. Howells did not at once see the story. He had promised to come to Hartford, but wrote that trivial matters had made his visit impossible. From the next letter we get the situation at this time. The Mr. Church mentioned was Frederick S. Church, the well-known artist. To W. D. Howells in Boston. Elmira, July 24, 89. Dear Howells, I, too, was as sorry as I could be, yes, and desperately disappointed. I even did a heroic thing, shipped my book off to New York, lest I should forget hospitality and embitter your visit with it. Not that I think you wouldn't like to read it, for I think you would, but not on a holiday. That's not the time. I see how you were situated another familiarity of providence and wholly wanton intrusion and of course we could not help ourselves well just think of it a while ago while providence's attention was absorbed in disordering some timetable so as to break up a trip of mine to mr church's on the hudson that johnstown dam got loose i swear i was afraid to pray for fear i should laugh well I'm not going to despair. We'll manage a meet yet. I expect to go to Hartford again in August, and maybe remain till I have to come back here and fetch the family. And, along there in August, sometime, you let on that you are going to Mexico, 
and I will let on that I am going to Spitzbergen, and then, under cover of this clever stratagem, we will glide from the trains at Worcester and have a time. I have noticed that Providence is indifferent about Mexico and Spitzbergen. Yours ever, Mark. Possibly Mark Twain was not particularly anxious that Howells should see his manuscript, fearing that he might lay a ruthless hand on some of his more violent fulminations and wild fancies. However this may be, further postponement was soon at an end. Mrs. Clemens' eyes troubled her and would not permit her to read, so she requested that the Yankee be passed upon by sober-minded critics, such as Howells and Edmund Clarence Stedman. Howells wrote that even if he hadn't wanted to read the book for its own sake, or for the author's sake, he would still want to do it for Mrs. Clemens, whereupon the proofs were started in his direction. To W. D. Howells in Boston Elmira, August 24, 89 Dear Howells, If you should be moved to speak of my book in the study, I shall be glad and proud, and the sooner it gets in, the better for the book though i don't suppose you can get it in earlier than the november number why no you can't get it in till a month later than that well anyway i don't think i'll send out any other press copy except perhaps to stedman i'm not writing for those parties who miscall themselves critics and i don't care to have them paw the book at all it's my swan song my retirement from literature permanently and I wish to pass to the cemetery unclotted. I judge that the proofs have begun to reach you about this time, as I had some, though not revises, this morning. I'm sure I'm going to be charmed with Beard's pictures. Observe his nice take-off of middle-age art dinner-table scene. Your sincerely, Mark. Howell's approval of the Yankee came almost in the form of exultant shouts, one after reading each batch of proof. First he wrote, It's charming, original, wonderful, good in fancy and sound, to the core in morals. And again, It's a mighty great book, and it makes my heart burn with wrath. It seems God did not forget to put a soul into you. He shuts most literary men off with a brain, merely. Then, a few days later, The book is glorious, simply noble. What masses of virgin truth never touched in print before. And finally, Last night I read your last chapter. As Stedman says of the whole book, it's titanic. To W. D. Howes in Boston Hartford, September 22, 89. Dear Howells, it is immensely good of you to grind through that stuff for me, but it gives peace to Mrs. Clemens' soul, and I'm as grateful to you as a body can be. I'm glad you approve of what I say about the French Revolution. Few people will. It is odd that even to this day Americans still observe that immortal benefaction through English and other monarchical eyes, and have no shred of an opinion about it that they didn't get at second hand. Next to the Fourth of July and its results, it was the noblest and the holiest thing and the most precious that ever happened in this earth, 
and its gracious work is not done yet, not anywhere in the remote neighborhood of it. Don't trouble to send me all the proofs. Send me the pages with your corrections on them, and wastebasket the rest. We issue the book December 10. Consequently, a notice that appears December 20 will be just in good time. I am waiting to see your study set a fashion in criticism. When that happens, as please God it must, consider that if you live three centuries, you couldn't do a more valuable work for this country or a humaner. As a rule, a critic's dissent merely enrages, and so does no good. But by the new art which you use, your dissent must be as welcome as your approval, and as valuable. I do not know what the secret of it is, unless it is your attitude. Man courteously reasoning with man and brother, in place of the worn and wearisome critical attitude of all this long time. Superior being lecturing a boy. Well, my book is written. Let it go. But if it were only to write over again, there wouldn't be so many things left out. They burn in me, and they keep multiplying and multiplying. But now they can't ever be said. And besides, they would require a library and a pen warmed up in hell. Yours ever, Mark. The typesetting machine began to loom large in the background. Clemens believed it perfected by this time. Page had got it together again, and it was running steadily, or approximately so, setting type at a marvelous speed and with perfect accuracy. In time, an expert operator would be able to set as high as 8,000 M's per hour, or about ten times as much as a good compositor could set and distribute by hand. Those who saw it were convinced, most of them, that the typesetting problem was solved by this great mechanical miracle. If there were any who doubted, it was because of its marvelously minute accuracy which the others only admired. Such accuracy, it was sometimes whispered, required absolutely perfect adjustment. And what would happen when the great inventor, the poet in steel, as Clemens once called him, was no longer at hand to supervise and to correct the slightest variation? But no such breath of doubt came to Mark Twain. He believed the machine as reliable as a constellation. But now there was need of capital to manufacture and market the wonder. Clemens, casting about in his mind, remembered Senator Jones of Nevada, a man of great wealth, and his old friend, Joe Goodman of Nevada, in whom Jones had unlimited confidence. He wrote to Goodman, and in this letter we get a pretty full exposition of the whole matter as it stood in the fall of 1889. We note in this communication that Clemens says that he has been at the machine three years and seven months but this was only the period during which he had spent the regular monthly sum of three thousand dollars. His interest in the invention had begun as far back as 1880. To Joseph T. Goodman in Nevada. Private. Hartford, October 7, 89. Dear Joe, I had a letter from Alec Badlam day before yesterday, and in answering him I mentioned a matter which I asked him to consider a secret except to you and John McComb. Footnote. 
this is colonel mccomb of the alta california who had sent mark twain on the quaker city excursion End of footnote. as i am not ready yet to get into the newspapers i have come near writing you about this matter several times but it wasn't ripe and i waited it is ripe now it is a typesetting machine which i undertook to build for the inventor for consideration i have been at it three years and seven months without losing a day at a cost of three thousand dollars a month and in so private a way that hartford has known nothing about it indeed only a dozen men have known of the matter i have reported progress from time to time to the proprietors of the new york sun herald times world harper brothers and john f trowell also to the proprietors of the boston herald and the boston globe three years ago i asked all these people to squelch their frantic desire to load up their offices with the mugenthaler new york tribune machine and wait for mine and then choose between the two they have waited with no very gaudy patience but still they have waited and i could prove to them to-day that they have not lost anything by it but i reserve the proof for the present except in the case of the new york herald i sent an invitation there the other day a courtesy due a paper which ordered two hundred forty thousand dollars worth of our machines long ago when it was still in a crude condition the herald has ordered its foreman to come up here next thursday but that is the only invitation which will go out for some time yet the machine was finished several weeks ago and has been running ever since in the machine shop it is a magnificent creature of steel all of pratt and whitney's super best workmanship and as nicely adjusted and as accurate as a watch in construction it is as elaborate and complex as that machine which it ranks next to by every right man and in performance it is as simple and sure anybody can set type on it who can read and can do it after only fifteen minutes instruction the operator does not need to leave his seat at the keyboard for the reason that he is not required to do anything but strike the keys and set type merely one function the spacing justifying emptying into the galley and distributing of dead matter is all done by the machine without anybody's help four functions the ease with which a cub can learn is surprising day before yesterday i saw our newest cub set perfectly spaced and perfectly justified twenty one hundred fifty m's of solid nonpareil in an hour and distribute the like amount in the same hour and six hours previously he had never seen the machine or its keyboard it was a good hour's work for three-year veterans on the other typesetting machines to do we have three cubs the dean of the trio is a school youth of eighteen yesterday morning he had been an apprentice on the machine sixteen working days eight-hour days and we speeded him to see what he could do in an hour in the hour he set fifty-nine hundred m's solid nonpareil and the machine perfectly spaced and justified it and of course distributed the like amount in the same hour 
considering that a good fair compositor sets seven hundred and distributes seven hundred in the one hour this boy did the work of about eight times the compositors in that hour this fact sends all other typeset machines a thousand miles to the rear and the best of them will never be heard of again after we publicly exhibit in new york we shall put on three more cubs we have one schoolboy and two compositors now and we think of putting on a typewriter a stenographer and perhaps a shoemaker to show that no special gifts or training are required with this machine we should train these beginners two or three months or until some of them gets up to seven thousand an hour then we will show up in new york and run the machine twenty-four hours a day seven days in the week for several months to prove that this is a machine which will never get out of order or cause delay and can stand anything an anvil can stand you know there is no other typeset machine that can run two hours on a stretch without causing trouble and delay with its incurable caprices we own the whole field every inch of it and nothing can dislodge us now then above is my preachment and here follows the reason and purpose of it i want you to run over here roost over the machine a week and satisfy yourself and then go to john p jones or to whom you please and sell me a hundred thousand dollars worth of this property and take ten per cent in cash or the property for your trouble the latter if you are wise because the price i ask is a long way short of the value what i call property is this a small part of my ownership consists of a royalty of five hundred dollars on every machine marketed under the american patents my selling terms are a permanent royalty of one dollar on every american marketed machine for a thousand dollars cash to me in hand paid we shan't market any fewer than five thousand machines in fifteen years a return of fifteen thousand dollars for one thousand a royalty is better than stock in one way it must be paid every six months rain or shine it is a debt and must be paid before dividends are declared by and by when we become a stock company i shall buy these royalties back for stock if i can get them for anything like reasonable terms i have never bought a penny to use on the machine and never sold a penny's worth of the property until the machine was entirely finished and proven by the severest test to be what she started out to be perfect permanent and occupying the position as regards all kindred machines which the city of paris occupies as regards the canvas backs of the mercantile marine it is my purpose to sell two hundred dollars of my royalties at the above price during the next two months and keep the other three hundred dollars mrs clemens begs mrs goodman to come with you and ask pardon for not writing the message herself which would be a pathetically welcome spectacle to me for i have been her amanuensis for eight months now since her eyes failed her yours as always mark while this letter with its amazing contents is on its way to astonish joe goodman we will consider one of quite a different but equally characteristic sort we may assume that mark twain's sister pamela had been visiting him in hartford and was now making a visit in keokuk 
to Mrs. Moffat in Keokuk. Hartford, October 9, 89. Dear Pamela, An hour after you left, I was suddenly struck with a realizing sense of the utter chuckle-headedness of that notion of mine, to send your trunk after you. Land, it was idiotic. None but a lunatic would separate himself from his baggage. Well, I am soulfully glad the baggage fetcher saved me from consummating my insane inspiration. I met him on the street in the afternoon and paid him again. I shall pay him several times more as opportunity offers. I declined the invitation to banquet with the visiting South American Congress in a polite note explaining that I had to go to New York today. I conveyed the note privately to Patrick. He got the envelope soiled and asked Livy to put on a clean one. That is why I am going to the banquet. Also, why I have disinvited the boys I thought I was going to punch billiards with upstairs tonight. Patrick is one of the injudiciousest people I ever struck, and I am the other. Your brother, Sam. The Yankee was now ready for publication, and advance sheets were already in the reviewer's hands. Just at this moment, the Brazilian monarchy crumbled, and Clemens was moved to write Sylvester Baxter of the Boston Herald a letter which is of special interest in its prophecy of the new day, the dawn of which was even nearer than he suspected. Dear Mr. Baxter, Another throne has gone down, and I swim in oceans of satisfaction. I wish I might live fifty years longer. I believe I should see the thrones of Europe selling at auction for old iron. I believe I should really see the end of what is purely the grotesquest of all the swindles ever invented by man-monarchy. It is enough to make a graven image laugh, to see apparently rational people away down here in this wholesome and merciless slaughter day for shams still mouthing empty reverence for those moss-backed frauds and scoundrelisms hereditary kingship and so-called nobility it is enough to make the monarchs and nobles themselves laugh and in private they do there can be no question about that I think there's only one funnier thing, and that is the spectacle of these bastard Americans, these Hammersleys and Huntingtons and such, offering cash, encumbered by themselves for rotten caucuses and stolen titles. When our great brethren, the disenslaved Brazilians, frame their Declaration of Independence, I hope they will insert this missing link. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all monarchs are usurpers and descendants of usurpers, for the reason that no throne was ever set up in this world by the will freely exercised of the only body possessing the legitimate right to set it up, the numerical mass of the nation. You already have the advanced sheets of my forthcoming book in your hands. If you will turn to about the 500th page, you will find a state paper of my Connecticut Yankee in which he announces the dissolution of King Arthur's monarchy and proclaims the English Republic. Compared with the state paper which announces the downfall of the Brazilian monarchy and proclaims the Republic of the United States of Brazil, 
and stand by to defend the Yankee from plagiarism. There is merely a resemblance of ideas, nothing more. The Yankee's proclamation was already in print a week ago. This is merely one of those odd coincidences which are always turning up. Come, protect the Yank from that cheapest and easiest of all charges, plagiarism. Otherwise, you see, he will have to protect himself by charging approximate and indefinite plagiarism upon the official servants of our majestic twin down yonder, and then there might be war, or some similar annoyance. Have you noticed the rumor that the Portuguese throne is unsteady, and that the Portuguese slaves are getting restive? Also, that the head slave-driver of Europe, Alexander III, has so reduced his usual monthly order for chains that the Russian foundries are running on only half-time now. Also, that other rumor that English nobility acquired an added stench the other day and had to ship it to India and the continent because there wasn't any more room for it at home. Things are working. By and by there's going to be an immigration, maybe. Of course, we shall make no preparation. We never do. In a few years from now, we shall have nothing but played-out kings and dukes on the police, and driving the horse-cars, and whitewashing fences, and, in fact, overcrowding all the avenues of unskilled labor. And then we shall wish, when it is too late, that we had taken common and reasonable precautions and drowned them at Castle Garden. There followed at this time a number of letters to Goodman, but as there is much of a sameness in them, we need not print them all. Clemens, in fact, kept the mails warm with letters bulging with schemes for capitalization and promising vast wealth to all concerned. When the letters did not go fast enough, he sent telegrams. In one of the letters, Goodman is promised five thousand dollars out of the profits before we get anything ourselves one thing we gather from these letters is that page has taken the machine apart again never satisfied with its perfection or perhaps getting a hint that certain of its perfections were not permanent a letter at the end of november seems worth preserving here to joseph t goodman in california hartford november twenty nine eighty nine dear joe things are getting into better and more flexible shape every day papers are now being drawn which will greatly simplify the raising of capital i shall be in supreme command it will not be necessary for the capitalist to arrive at terms with anybody but me i don't want to dicker with anybody but jones i know him that is to say i want to dicker with you and through you with Jones. Try to see if you can't be here by the 15th of January. The machine was as perfect as a watch when we took her apart the other day, but when she goes together again the 15th of January, we expect her to be perfecter than a watch. Joe, I want you to sell some royalties to the boys out there, if you can, for I want to be financially strong when we go to New York. You know the machine, and you appreciate its future enormous career better than any man I know. At the lowest conceivable estimate, 2,000 machines a year, 
we shall sell 34,000 in the life of the patent 17 years. All the family send love to you, and they mean it, or they wouldn't say it. Yours ever, Mark. The Yankee had come from the press, and Howells had praised it in the editor's study in Harper's Magazine. He had given it his highest commendation, and it seems that his opinion of it did not change with time. Of all fanciful schemes of fiction, it pleases me most, he in one place declared, and again referred to it as a greatly imagined and symmetrically developed tale. In more than one letter to Goodman, Clemens had urged him to come east without delay. Take the train, Joe, and come along, he wrote in early December, and we judge from the following that Joe had decided to come. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Hartford, December twenty-three, eighty-nine. Dear Howells, the magazine came last night, and the study notice is just great. The satisfaction it affords us could not be more prodigious if the book deserved every word of it, and maybe it does. I hope it does, though of course I can't realize it and believe it but I am your grateful servant anyway, and always. I am going to read to the cadets at West Point, January 11. I go from here to New York the 9th, and up to the point the 11th. Can't you go with me? It's great fun. I am going to read the passages in the Yankee in which the Yankee's West Point cadets figure, and shall covertly work in a lecture on aristocracy to those boys. I am to be the guest of the superintendent, but if you will go, I will shake him and we will go to the hotel. He is a splendid fellow, and I know him well enough to take that liberty. And won't you give me a day or two's visit toward the end of January? For two reasons. The machine will be at work again by that time, and we want to hear the rest of the dream story. Mrs. Clemens keeps speaking about it and hankering for it and we can have Joe Goodman on hand again by that time, and I want you to get to know him thoroughly. It's well worth it. I'm going to run up and stay overnight with you as soon as I can get a chance. We are in the full rush of the holidays now, and an awful rush it is, too. You ought to have been here the other day, to make that day perfect and complete. All alone I managed to inflict agonies on Mrs. Clemens, whereas I was expecting nothing but praises. I made a party call the day after the party, and called the lady down from breakfast to receive it. I then left there and called on a new bride, who received me in her dressing gown, and as things went pretty well, I stayed to luncheon. The error here was that the appointed reception hour was three in the afternoon, and not at the bride's house, but at her aunt's, in another part of the town. However, as I meant well, none of these disasters distressed me. Yours ever, Mark. The Yankee did not find a very hearty welcome in England. English readers did not fancy any burlesque of their Arthurian tales or American strictures on their institutions. Mark Twain's publishers had feared this, and asked that the story be especially edited for the English edition. Clemens, however, would not listen to any suggestions of the sort. 
to messrs chatto and windus in london england gentlemen concerning the yankee i have already revised the story twice and it has been read critically by w d howells and edmund clarence stedman and my wife has caused me to strike out several passages that have been brought to her attention and to soften others furthermore i have read chapters of the book in public where englishmen were present and have profited by their suggestions now mind you i have taken all this pains because i wanted to say a yankee mechanic say against monarchy and its several natural props and yet make a book which you would be willing to print exactly as it comes to you without altering a word we are spoken of by englishmen as a thin-skinned people it is you who are thin-skinned an englishman may write with the most brutal frankness about any man or institution among us and we republish him without dreaming of altering a line or a word but england cannot stand that kind of a book written about herself it is england that is thin-skinned it causeth me to smile when i read the modifications of my language which have been made in my english editions to fit them for the sensitive english palate now as i say i have taken laborious pains to so trim this book of offence that you might not lack the nerve to print it just as it stands i am going to get the proofs to you just as early as i can i want you to read it carefully if you can publish it without altering a single word go ahead otherwise please hand it to j r osgood in time for him to have it published at my expense this is important for the reason that the book was not written for america it was written for england so many englishmen have done their sincerest best to teach us something for our betterment that it seems to me high time that some of us should substantially recognize the good intent by trying to pry up the english nation to a little high level of manhood in return very truly yours s l clemens the english nation at least a considerable portion of it did not wish to be pried up to a higher level of manhood by a connecticut yankee the papers pretty generally denounced the book as coarse in fact a vulgar travesty some of the critics concluded that england after all had made a mistake in admiring mark twain clemens stood this for a time and then seems to have decided that something should be done one of the foremost of english critics was his friend and admirer he would state the case to him fully and invite his assistance to andrew lang in london footnote first page missing end of footnote eighteen eighty nine they vote but do not print the head tells you pretty promptly whether the food is satisfactory or not and everybody hears and thinks the whole man has spoken it is a delusion only his taste and his smell have been heard from important both in a way but these do not build up the man and preserve his life and fortify it the little child is permitted to label its drawings this is a cow this is a horse and so on this protects the child it saves it from the sorrow 
and wrong of hearing its cows and its horses criticized as kangaroos and workbenches. A man who is whitewashing a fence is doing a useful thing. So also is the man who is adorning a rich man's house with costly frescoes, and all of us are sane enough to judge these performances by standards proper to each. Now then, to be fair, an author ought to be allowed to put upon his book an explanatory line. This is written for the head. This is written for the belly and the members. And the critic ought to hold himself in honor bound to put away from him his ancient habit of judging all books by one standard, and thenceforth follow a fair course. The critic assumes every time that if a book doesn't meet the cultivated class standard, it isn't valuable. Let us apply his law all around, for if it is sound in the case of novels, narratives, pictures and such things, it is certainly sound and applicable to all the steps which lead up to culture and make culture possible. It condemns the spelling book for a spelling book is of no use to a person of culture. It condemns all school books and all schools which lie between the child's primer and Greek and between the infant school and the university. It condemns all the rounds of art which lie between the cheap terracotta groups and the Venus de Medici and between the chromo and the transfiguration. It requires Whitcomb Riley to sing no more till he can sing like Shakespeare, and it forbids all amateur music and will grant its sanction to nothing below the classic. Is this an extravagant statement? No, it is a mere statement of fact. It is the fact itself that is extravagant and grotesque. And what is the result? This, and it is sufficiently curious. The critic has actually imposed upon the world the superstition that a painting by Raphael is more valuable to the civilizations of the earth than is a chromo, and the august opera than the hurdy-gurdy and the villagers singing society, and Homer than the little everybody's poet whose rhymes are in all mouths today and will be in nobody's mouth next generation, and the Latin classics than Kipling's far-reaching bugle note, and Jonathan Edwards than the Salvation Army, and the Venus de Medici than the plaster-cast peddler. The superstition, in a word, that the vast and awful comet that trails its cold luster through the remote abysses of space once a century and interests and instructs a cultivated handful of astronomers is worth more to the world than the sun which warms and cheers all the nations every day and makes the crops to grow. If a critic should start a religion, it would not have any object but to convert angels, and they wouldn't need it. The thin top crust of humanity, the cultivated, are worth pacifying, worth pleasing, worth coddling, worth nourishing and preserving with dainties and delicacies, it is true but to be caterer to that little faction is no very dignified or valuable occupation, it seems to me. It is merely feeding the overfed, and there must be small satisfaction in that. 
it is not that little minority who are already saved that are best worth trying to uplift i should think but the mighty mass of the uncultivated who are underneath that mass will never see the old masters that side is for the few but the chromo maker can lift them all one step upward toward appreciation of art they cannot have the opera but the hurdy-gurdy and the singing class lift them a little way toward that far light they will never know homer but the passing rhymester of their day leaves them higher than it found them they may never even hear the latin classics but they will strike step with kipling's drumbeat and they will march for all jonathan edwards help they would die in their slums but the salvation army will beguile some of them up to pure air and a cleaner life they know no sculpture the venus is not even a name to them but they are a grade higher in the scale of civilization by the ministrations of the plaster cast than they were before it took its place upon the mantle and made it beautiful to their unexacting eyes indeed i have been misjudged from the very first i have never tried in even one single instance to help cultivate the cultivated classes i was not equipped for it either by native gifts or training and i never had any ambition in that direction but always hunted for a bigger game the masses i have seldom deliberately tried to instruct them but have done my best to entertain them to simply amuse them would have satisfied my dearest ambition at any time for they could get instruction elsewhere and i had two chances to help to the teachers one for amusement is a good preparation for study and a good healer of fatigue after it my audience is dumb it has no voice in print and so i cannot know whether i have won its approbation or only got its censure yes you see i have always catered for the belly and the members but have been served like the others criticized from the culture standard to my sorrow and pain because honestly i never cared what became of the cultured classes they could go to the theatre and the opera they had no use for me and the melodeon and now at last i arrive at my object and tender my petition making supplication to this effect that the critics adopt a rule recognizing the belly and the members and formulate a standard whereby work done for them shall be judged help me mr lang no voice can reach further than yours in a case of this kind or carry greater weight of authority lang's reply was an article in the illustrated london news on the art of mark twain lang had no admiration to express for the yankee which he confessed he had not cared to read but he glorified huck finn to the highest i can never forget nor be ungrateful for the exquisite pleasure with which i read huckleberry finn for the first time years ago he wrote i read it again last night deserting kenilworth for huck i never laid it down till i had finished it lang closed his article by referring to the story of huck as the great american novel which had escaped the eyes of those who watched to see this new planet swim into their kin end of section thirty one recording by james k white chula vista